One of the more difficult things you can get involved with as an HR executive is transformation. When you are coming into a organization that is in a turnaround process, there is an incredible amount of stress and pressure and ultimately coordination that needs to happen for that turnaround to be successful. And a lot of that falls on the people team. In today's episode, I'm really excited to sit down with the chief people officer of Mozilla, Michael D'Angelo. Michael has a deep HR background that spans companies including Merck, Microsoft, Pinterest, Google, PepsiCo, and currently Mozilla. And he is in an HR transformation situation there. And so we're going to talk about his path, that journey to Mozilla, and really what are some of the key elements that HR executives need to think of when they're in HR transformation situations. We'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am thrilled to be joined today by the Chief People Officer for Mozilla, Michael D'Angelo. Michael and I are going to get into a range of topics that spans his both deep and broad HR career, including some media areas like turnaround and HR transformation. So, uh, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you give listeners a brief introduction on you? Hey, Lars. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so, uh, yeah, just as background, I've been in the people space for probably 20 years and uh, live in San Francisco. And my current role is with uh, with Mozilla as chief people officer and have had uh, yeah, I've had really feel like a blessed career working across a lot of different industries and, and different great companies. So uh, happy to share. And uh, the caveat I would give up front is uh, if you talk to 50 people like me, uh, they'll tell you different things. So I'll give you my point of view and, <laughs> and sort of what I've learned over the over the last 20 years. Yeah. And to be fair uh, with your background, I don't know if there are 50 people like you, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, but but point, point taken. Um, I think, you know, when you look across your experience, uh, it, it's a fascinating uh, kind of, you know, lineage of companies that you've worked at spanning, you know, Merck, Microsoft, PepsiCo. Google, Pinterest, and currently Mozilla. And there's a lot of uh, rich learnings, I'm sure, in that background that uh, we can dig into. But before we even go there, what what drew you to HR to begin with? Uh, yeah, like most people, I think, uh, in my age group, uh, it's I came around it through the side as opposed to like got into the discipline intentionally. But the uh, I was always, I grew up in New Jersey and half of the population in New Jersey wanted to grow up and be a lawyer. And I was in that half. So I worked uh, I worked actually through undergrad. I went to school at night and I was a paralegal uh, in, in employment law. And I had gone through the process of uh, LSAT, applying to law school, and was actually set to go 
and uh, one month before I started, I just, there was something fundamental that I knew practicing law was not going to be interesting to me. And largely because I worked with a lot of uh, lawyers and I saw a lot of work uh, over <laughs> five years, but I, I, so I, I sort of had a crisis and I was 20, 22 years old and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I worked in employment law and I had worked with a lot of HR folks and there was one I was close with and I talked with her and I said, look, I don't, I'm really, I don't know what I'd want to do. And she said, well, have you considered HR? I think because she worked with me quite a bit. Uh, she had just been promoted. She said, I've got a recruiter opening. If you'd be interested, I actually think you'd be good in HR. And I said, yeah, I, I, I really like the the issues that you, we talk about. And I like the uh, the thought of, you know, how do you make uh, leaders effective? How do you make people effective? So I tried it out and I loved it. Uh, and after that, they said, well, if you want to progress in this company, uh, you'll need to go to get your, your grad degree. And I did that. And uh, once I saw the curriculum, I really fell in love with the discipline. And it's luckily I, I got into it because I, I still have no idea what I'd be doing if it wasn't for uh, the people function. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think when you, and I, I would, you know, not having your resume in front of me, but I think we've, you know, we've probably started our careers around the same time. I think it, it's a very common story for people that began their careers then that, uh, you kind of, again, that the side path in, it wasn't necessarily the the career that it is now. And I think that's one of the things that's, that's exciting about the field today is that I think it is, it has matured in some really interesting ways where now I think as I you know talk to younger talent and people just starting their careers, I think it's a much more of a conscious and deliberate choice uh, to get into the field. And there's also the, the breadth of types of opportunities that exist today are, are so much more robust um, than they were, you know, back, back in the day. Yeah, totally agree. And I love that. I, I talk with a lot of, uh, more, um, you know, junior talent who, who are looking to get into the field, uh, and they're super thoughtful about it, even in undergrad and they're thinking, taking courses and uh, thinking longer term about it. And that's just, it's just greatness for the function. Yeah. And so, you know, from your Vantage point, um, you know, the, the, the CHRO role, the, I'm sorry, the CHRO role has evolved, um, you know, quite a bit over the last 10 years. And, and obviously during that time, you've had HR executive roles at, you know, places like Pinterest and, and Google and PepsiCo. Uh, and, and obviously now your role at Mozilla. When you think of how that position has evolved over the last decade, what things stand out to you? How, how is it different today than it was 10 years ago? Yeah, um, it's. I think it's much more complicated now than it was when I first started in more senior roles. The, 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 I think the business environment is much more complicated. So there's, it's just, it's constantly moving. Uh, the pace of change is, is super fast, much faster than I remember, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of consolidation in particular companies. So, uh, with some big, like for big tech, for example, or, uh, some other players in other industries, and you, the the difficulty of companies trying to compete and to stand out and differentiate is really fat is changing very quickly, and you have to continue to differentiate. So the there's complexity there, uh, and for tech, when I spend half my career in tech, you're just constantly being disrupted. So it's churning, like it is a there's a lot more stress <laughs> in the system for for people and and uh, everyone from top to bottom in an org, and that's. That's a big challenge. So I, I think as a 
I'll say CPO. I like the people's uh, as opposed to the HR. I'll say chief people officer. We worry about capabilities a lot more now. Like, do you have the capabilities to compete, not just in the current model, business model you have, but the, the next one that you're planning on because you're going to get disrupted. So that's different. And then there's a really basic one that I don't think we talk about a lot, but the, the evolution of sort of real time and viral media makes the stakes much higher now than 10 years ago. Uh, so you, your ability to, to part, of, part of our role is to mitigate risk and, and to manage that for, for an organization. And it's not quite this dramatic, but most of us are one tweet away from really bad brand damage. Uh, and that's, that lasts for a long time because things stay out on the internet. And 10 years ago, you, you mostly just worried about how do I make sure my, we take care of our, our people? How do we make sure they feel like there's, it's a strong and it's an inclusive culture? And now it's that stuff gets out, and you, we see so many of our peers or, or companies who who go sideways based on one one event, and sometimes it's merited uh, where they just didn't invest there, and sometimes it's a it's a mistake, and mistakes happen. But there's a real internal and external impact we need to think through now uh, in in the current media environment. Yeah, well, I think you know to the, your point around media, there's a real velocity to which things can spread. Um, right. And, and in some cases before the story is really developed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there may be a, a partial element of a story and then that goes viral. Um, but that's not the complete picture. And then yeah. even if the full picture comes out and it kind of undoes, uh, uh, it, it, it kind of right sizes the story, the, the damage is already done. You, you can't, you can't necessarily, that doesn't go away even I think at a later point when you, when you correct that story. And that's a, that's a really complicated environment to uh, to be in, particularly in, in a role like yours. And I think to your point earlier as well around kind of CPO versus C- CHRO, it's fascinating because I think the I've always the the title CPO uh, tends to certainly be common in, in technology uh, companies and, and technology organization. And I think traditional organizations, um, in large part, still have a CHRO. But it was I recorded a podcast a couple months back with uh, Mastercards. Uh, CPO, uh, Michael Fricaro, and he had just gone through uh, a transformation of his own title from CHRO to CPO for the reasons you mentioned, and his team was going through a reinvention. And it was, it was fascinating to me because I think that was one of the first, um, you know, what I would consider kind of traditional uh, organizations that was starting to follow that path as well. Yeah, that's great. No, I think it, these are, they're small things, but I do think the, our job in particular it's important that we never lose sight of the fact that you're you're really you're support you're there to support people and you're there to support the the business, but you have the unique responsibility of making sure there's an inclusive and a and a supportive culture. And the more senior you get, the it's it's very easy to get pulled away from that because most of your interface can just be with the executive team. But yep. uh, we try to spend a lot of time focusing on what's happening in, at any level within the organization, and that's about that's about people. Yeah. And one of the things I'm curious to get your perspective on, you know, being that you've you've been in kind of you know large global HR leadership roles in a mix of tech and non-tech industries, how would you compare and contrast those two? What's different about leading HR functions in in technical companies versus non-technical companies? Um, this is a cop out, but they're different and the same. The same yeah. in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, yeah, let's dig uh, into both. The more, yeah, be- the more you the older you get like me, the more you see truth. Like the truth is very broad uh, right. in, in how, how people practices are done. 
But uh, the first thing I would say is for anyone who's listening who wants to be a CPO, I would encourage people to do uh, to spend a lot of time in different industries. And I had a great mentor uh, who's still a mentor to me from my early days uh, at Merck. And he was he's pretty insistent. He said, you need to see different businesses. You need to get into uh, consumer products. You need to see tech you uh, that will that will make you a better business practitioner. And uh, when you are that, then you're better able to to create people solutions that that sort of meet business needs. Um, but the I, I still feel like a I don't always feel tech, honestly, like I sometimes yeah. I feel more like heavy manufacturing and consumer products where uh, you're working with uh, not just technical people, but people who are who don't really have a career, but they they have a job and they're they're uh, I worked with a lot of blue collar and I'm, I grew up blue collar. Actually, my dad was an electrician. So in some ways, I feel more comfortable uh, with blue collar uh, folks, and I've worked with a lot of unions probably half my career. Uh, and you just that also gives you a sense of people and getting connected. And what's it what's it really like to do that that person's job? Uh, so I think we get you get that more in some of the more traditional non tech companies than in tech. Um, and that's I think that's goodness. That's really good if you if you build that into your DNA early uh, in your career. Um, and I think the non-tech just just because the the length of time that companies like heavy manufacturing and CPG have been out, they've been doing this for a hundred years. So yeah. and and literally, like they are they're much more disciplined and steeped in uh, OD and sort of uh, the science behind a lot of what we do in, in IO psychology. Uh, and they're just they've been they've been a partner to the business for a lot longer than tech has. Tech's the discipline in tech is still nascent. So right. uh, I think you're from a training perspective and development, uh, I would encourage people like if you're going to do, you're going to go into, to the function. I would, I would go into some of those other companies first, uh, and get, uh, where there's still, you're, you're going to learn a lot of progressive things and you're going to have a P and L responsibility to some extent, because you're working directly with the, with the business. Uh, and you, you learn the, the fundamentals there, I think better probably than in tech, uh, these days. Uh, the downside is it's they're mostly larger companies uh, in non-tech. They're it's it's harder to drive change uh, because it it just takes longer. Not that they're averse to change, but it just takes longer. Um, but sometimes because they've been doing things for a while, it is harder to change people's minds. So that that happens in in non-tech, which is that's one of the downsides. Right. That uh, that makes sense. That's actually a really interesting perspective. I would just give you like a couple of things. The strengths in tech is you can move super fast. I think people are more open to doing uh, innovative things in, in the people space and, and testing. It's just it is it, it tends to be a more open environment. Uh, and I would say overall, there's there's higher tolerance for change just because people's work and the industry changes so much that the the DNA is a little bit more chi- change minded. Um, the downsides are uh, there's some of the the, the, the ones that we that's been out in, in media and it's very clear, like we, in tech, we have not made fast enough progress in DNI, uh, and we're still way behind there. Uh, and the, the one key difference is the seasoning of managers or leaders, uh, is always, <laughs> is always harder in tech because people are, uh, people move so fast and they're, they're going through promotion tracks so quickly. Often they're not getting the seasoning of what it takes to be a really good manager or leader. And it's not just judgment. It's just, going through mistakes and learning and, and getting the seasoning and sort of having some uh, some battles that you've lost and you've learned from. 
I think that's that's a really important point around you know kind of L and D development tech because I think and this is you know perhaps starting to change. I'm starting to see some companies that are investing more in that area earlier. But for a lot of companies, especially startups that are in hyper growth, you know, they're so focused on recruiting and scale. And on the one side, from a career development standpoint, you know, it's great for employees that are early on because you get to take on a lot more and, and stretch yourself in ways that you know you might not in a in a more of a traditional organization. Um, the challenge is, is oftentimes that's not coupled with the training and support to know how to be an effective you know, manager or whatever the role is. And it happens a lot of times in managers where people are kind of moved into a leadership role, you know, because they don't have a senior individual contributor path. And now they're managing a team and they've, it's their first time doing it and they've never had any support from the organization on how to be an effective manager. And that can be a recipe for disaster that uh, I think is, is not that uncommon in tech. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there is the baseline problem of not doing enough for managers when they first step into the job. And we we've launched we launched a bunch of those things in in Google and I launched them in Pinterest and in, in Mozilla. Uh, then there's the problem of the concept of the leadership pipeline just doesn't exist in tech like it does in non-tech, where people you're, you're very thoughtful about to go to a manager manager role and learn how to be exceptional at growing managers so you build scale. Then think of a functional leader role. Uh, and learn the differences there where you're, you're having to make pretty big trade-offs in what you prioritize and then going up to enterprise, going up to um, more of a, a multiple uh, P&L uh, type approach or enterprise approach. There's no, there isn't that career path. So what I see in a lot of leaders out, even outside the people function is they, they've never done some of this, gone through some of those, those seasoning steps and they're going like the, the most acute issue is you've got to, you've got a product manager who has an idea and she starts a company and then she's forced to go into the CEO spot and she'd never done any of the steps in between and uh, not having, let alone the experiences, but this, the seasoning and learning that comes with those, that's just to a detriment. And that's why the, I think a lot of the leadership uh, capability issues are are there in tech because we, we haven't groomed them throughout the, that path. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, one thing I'm curious about as well, it, kind of following your background when you when you transitioned and from your role at PepsiCo to Google, you know your your first role at Google was uh, as an HR executive over the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. And uh, I'm curious for one, was that your first uh, kind of international uh, scoped role and a role uh, where you were based kind of overseas, overseeing a population outside of the U.S. It was my, it wasn't my first international role. I was, my first job out of grad school was running Comp and Ben uh, for Asia Pacific at Merck. So I spent most of my time over in the region, but I uh, had to, we lived in New Jersey and my mentor I mentioned before, we were headquartered in New New Jersey of all places, but it was a very centralized uh, people function. So, um, but the first time I lived in the region was in EMEA. But the, the being the first job out of grad school, it really changed my perspective very early on for having a, a mindset towards thinking about uh, the people who are doing the work outside of the U.S. and what it's what it's like uh, living on the the other side of the phone call at that point, uh, and making sure that they had the tools and the resources they needed and they felt connected, uh, and wherever we could, they felt autonomy. So that was that was one of the most important experiences I got because. 
I came to be known as sort of the international rep at headquarters for sort of any projects or global things we launched. I was on just about every team because I had that international uh, mindset. And uh, I feel like most, most of the roles that I brought going forward, I still had an international population and I had to travel and I kept that with me. So I, I would also recommend if anyone's earlier in their career, do something that's at least supporting international, if not overseas, uh, really early. Yeah, I think that's that having that exposure to global operations and, and allowing you to start developing that global mindset early on, uh, I can see how that would be valuable, not, you know, obviously not just in the role of Google, but throughout your career. Um, when you when you kind of stepped into that position, how did you approach kind of building out your your HR, uh, you know, structure, philosophy, approach, et cetera, for for those regions at Google's after you'd moved out there? Yeah, um, it was a huge, <laughs> a huge transition. Right. And I think first, just as a, uh, it's great for people, especially Americans, because they're so heliocentric. It's great for Americans just to go out and live outside of the US, live where in a place where uh, maybe English isn't the strongest language uh, and, and having to learn just how to operate. Uh, and that's just goodness for just as a life skill, but also as a, as a people practitioner. Uh, but the, yeah, the, the first, um, the first thing I really learned and sort of focused on is any regional role that alone is just misleading. Like you're, it, there's no point of view from EMEA. Like, and that's a, this is a joke with some of my, my friends and, uh, in the industry, but if oftentimes you want to go out and get, so what does EMEA think of this? If you're thinking of a global, global program, what does APAC think of this? And it's, it's just, so it's very American because even Europe is not Europe. Even sometimes Germany is not Germany. If right. you have multiple sites, like you have to get very local uh, input and there is no EMEA. There's a, there's a collection of 20 different locations that have very different cultures, different laws, different perspectives on, on people and, and business. So the first thing I did was just, I talked with a lot of, of folks on the ground in each of the different sites. And I had people, people on the ground, um, who were awesome and they, and they ran, uh, the, the people function for each of the 20 locations, but I just went out and I talked and I, I learned from the site leaders I learned from people there, what were the gaps? What did they need? Uh, and co-developed a lot of the programs that we put in place. And I, I think in tech that works really well. So if you were looking at, I'll make it up, but we, we did a, a manager development program there, uh, what does that need to be? What's different about operating in each of those groups uh, and what a managers need? And, and then we would, we would build that and co-develop it with uh, a, a swath of people who could help provide input there. Uh, from a structure side, uh, it was, it was pretty typical structure. I had, I had responsibility for uh, all the people partners. I had um, dual responsibilities and there was a, each of the, the functional groups, had a, a report into headquarters and also had a report into me. So um, I treated the, all the functions as like part of the, the broader people function. And uh, I had one manager who oversaw people partners. I had someone who oversaw comp and Ben and recruiting and, and on and on. So a uh, pretty typical structure. Uh, the, the things that are most important out there is just is getting local. Uh, and especially if you're, if you're not from the region, getting really clear with the local labor law, laws and, and how, like, which takes a lot of time. 
Yeah, well, I mean, 20 regions, uh, I'd imagine they're all fairly unique and distinct in terms of their own labor laws and approaches and practices and customs. That's a, there's a tremendous amount of nuance in that uh, for someone like you, kind of in that role where you're overseeing operations across them. So having those those boots on the ground, the, those kind of local resources that can help um, accelerate your education, I imagine that was invaluable. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you know, I think what it really, one of the, it taught me a few things, but the one of the clear ones was you learn how to build for scale and you're never going to be able to build something individually for 20 different locations with a lot of different needs, but you have to get to some of your offerings have to build for scale. And at the CPO level, you're constantly making these trade-offs of scale versus individualization. Uh, and then which which things that you invest in, because everybody has limited resources, even at Google, uh, which ones are going to pay off? And uh, some of that's judgment, but some of it's testing and, and really talking with leaders about where are your key pain points. And then finding things like if you improve all managers by 10%, even you drive a ton of scale into the organization. Uh, so those bet learning how to take those bets and go after uh, scale with limited resources was a, was a key learning. Um, but the, the other thing that just sticks out to me about being in region is uh, you have, you often have two leaders, you have a, a functional leader of the region, and then you have your, you have a business leader of the region, and then you have a functional leader back in, in HQ. And I dramatically underestimated the challenge of that because the, they couldn't have been different, more different for, from terms of what they think was the most important thing to value from the people function. And that was a, uh, learning how to manage the triangle of your business leader and a functional leader. Uh, and the function could, if you're, if you're below a CPO, the function could be the CPO, or it could be just what we want to do across the enterprise versus what the, the, the local uh, region wants to do. And uh, spending time up front, if you're in this type of role, really focusing on that relationship between those two leaders. And uh, even if they're nine time zones away, like making sure you understand how can they come to an agreement on a balance between company and regional. And that was one of the toughest parts of that job. But I learned, I learned a ton in it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great point for anyone who's listening who you know, may be considering or in a similar position because you have you know, kind of dual stakeholders, uh, if you will, that may not be on the same page in terms of priorities and focus and expected outcomes. And so that, that can be dicey if you're, uh, if you're in the middle of that and don't have that kind of open line of communication, not just with them, but kind of across them as well. So after your role at Google, you uh, you returned to the states, uh, the states to join Pinterest as their SVP, and uh, I'm curious, kind of looking back across that experience, what was your proudest accomplishment there? There was, I feel really good about a lot of things there, and the team, the team was fantastic. Like I, I that was a stellar team across every function, uh, and uh, I learned a ton from them. I think they learned from me. Uh, so I think, I feel like we, in the three and a half years I was there, we got, we got a lot out the door and it was a, it was a really big amount of transformation and a growth, growth in the business. Uh, I feel like I'm most proud of the DNI uh, diversity inclusion work we did because I feel like we're really ahead of the curve uh, in tech in particular, particularly for um, startups, because most startups, they're just focusing on understandably, but focusing on getting to IPO, building the business, uh, building the engagement loops with users and driving uh, Mao. And uh, for us, uh, I was employee 180. And 
uh, one of the things I, I worked on with the leadership team is I had learned from being at bigger companies that the longer you wait to really focus on this, whether that comes in uh, the people that you hire or the types of inclusion practices you put in place, if you wait too long, you've lost. And the big tech companies, for them to do the turnaround from where they're at and the baselines they have, it's really hard to do that. It's almost impossible if you get to like 10,000 people and you're, you're now trying to invest in diversity and build it into your DNA. Uh, you, it, it's, it's almost impossible. So uh, we started super early. And uh, I think that with all the work that we did there, and uh, by the way, Candace Morgan was my, my DNI leader and she's phenomenal. She's just super world-class. She does, she deserves a lot of the credit uh, for the progress we made, but uh, the, the focus that we had on DNI, how it became part of the, the overall DNA, and then uh, the things that we did to drive representation change uh, over time, uh, and then inclusion change over time, were they were probably in, in top and top decile or top quartile in tech. Uh, probably the the crowning achievement I'd say is where we were the first ones, first company anywhere I think of any industry that I know of to to publish our DNI goals uh, publicly, and uh, that was before. That was before this even doing goals was really a thing for the whole uh, the full the whole company, uh, and the the coolest thing is we got a shout out from President Obama the, the week after we did it, and I got a picture from my team uh, that everyone signed where it was him at the podium talking about uh, he, it was it was a <laughs> it was just a name drop for Pinterest but it was the culmination of probably nine months worth of work, uh, and uh, super proud of the team and everything we did there. Yeah, and when you when you look back, you know, obviously starting early, I think that is that's a really important point because I think once you again once you hit a certain critical mass, it's much harder uh, to your point or even impossible in some cases to really make a significant um, systemic kind of DNA driven uh, difference in terms of how the company operates. Um, and so, obviously, starting early is definitely valuable. Are, are there any other kind of specific um, kind of tactical practices that uh, you know, Candace and your team led at Pinterest that you think allowed you to be so successful? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. And we, we shared, uh, we shared a lot of it. We always open sourced what we were doing and, and learning. Uh, but the, the first is it's credit to the CEO, Ben Silberman and the co-founder Evan Sharp, because they were strong advocates. And if you don't have that, it's really hard to, to do this because the, uh, there are trade-offs. Like you will, you will not move as fast as as you want to if you take all the things that you should take into account with DNI. Be very easy to just, uh, from a hiring perspective, not focus on it. From inclusion perspective, not focus on it, and move faster. Like it's and for a startup to do that, you have to be willing to make that that uh, investment. But they they both have super strong moral compasses and they cared about it. And if you have that, you can do. Uh, you can do a lot, and they they cared about it specifically because uh, first they would always say it's the right thing to do, but they also agreed with the research that diverse teams create better products because they challenge each other. And I think we've all seen this. If you're in a team that just they all have the same ideas, uh, it's these conversations on when you're making product decisions or you're making business decisions, they're really easy because everyone's thinking the same way, and they're like, "Yep, let's go do it." And they're fast, they're fast meetings, but when you've got people who have lots of different experiences and life experiences or backgrounds, you just push, you push and pull on your thinking 
and you come up with things that you wouldn't have come up with because you challenge and, and that's the type of environment they want it. Uh, so that it starts with that. I'd say if you are a CPO and you're, you're in this space, your first job is to get the people team to that, uh, the, uh, the leadership team to that level and, and find the thing that resonates for them. That is, this is why it's important that they feel, uh, and whatever it is, cause it's different for, for different leaders, but you have to start with that, which we, which we had, um, I also think that leadership team, you know, second thing is important is they have to be willing to, to innovate. Uh, and it's, they're going to, we're going to be open to trying different things. And we tried a lot of different things on from recruiting side, from uh, what we did for, for people who came from underrepresented backgrounds, once we, they got to, uh, to Pinterest and uh, the investment that leaders spend in going to uh, ERG types of meetings or uh, meeting with people. Uh, who who might have uh, concerns or or have uh, suggestions on things that could help either more broadly at DNI or uh, for particular groups, and that they were very involved uh, in that. Uh, and the last the last thing I'd say was just which is super important, just to reiterate: if you don't, we started early, we started very early. So to to build a diverse team from lots of different backgrounds, uh, you have to get to critical mass because there's something very basic that when you come in to interview and doesn't matter how much money the company says they spend, if you, you come in the interview and you walk around and you don't see anyone who looks like you or comes from your background, you've lost. Like it's, they, they are not going to believe you that you take, you take this seriously. So it really focusing on that early building, building that as natural DNA and critical mass. If you have more tech women uh, who it will feel more safe if you're a woman from technical background to come into an organization, uh, if you're from an underrepresented background, it's the same. Like you, you want to feel safe and, and it's awful to feel like an only. And we talked about this all the time. We didn't want anyone who came into the organization to feel like an only because that's, that's an awful feeling. Uh, and the more you can provide support and, and people who have shared backgrounds, uh, the, the, the faster you'll make progress. Yeah, that's really good advice. And, uh, and I think I, what I'll also do is I will um, go back through some of the uh, open source work that you've had on Pinterest and include some of those links in the show description. So for listeners that want to dig a little bit more into that, uh, we'll, we'll serve that up for you in the, uh, the show overview. Um, about a little over two years ago, you left Pinterest, uh, a role, you know, sounds like you, you had a lot of fun in and, and were really passionate about to join Mozilla as their Chief People Officer, and I'm curious what what kind of led to that transition for you. What what appealed to you about kind of stepping out of a role that uh, that, that you're really engaged in and, and move into a new position? There was a few things about Mozilla that that really stood out to me, but there um, there was there's a business transformation that was going on, uh, and Mozilla is an iconic brand. It has been uh, in the industry for 20 years, and uh, when I talked, when I heard about the, the role, I was like, I love the brand and I love what it stands for, uh, you know, an open and accessible internet for everyone. And I've been, I had been a Firefox user. Uh, so the, the business transformation was unique because they were trying to do something very different. And that's always really good, rich people work. If you can get into a, a company that is transforming, uh, the mess part was in the people, the, the people team. So we were not in a good spot. Uh, and I would prefer to go into a people team that needs a lot of work uh, and they had people like hearts in the right place, uh, but that the environment wasn't positive at all. The, the, the teams did not work well together. 
they did not have a strong reputation uh, in in the, the company. And uh, that's the type of work that I love. I love to get in and, and build from the ground up and and fix wherever I can. So that was that was super uh, exciting. Plus, my heart just went out to them because there was so many really good people there who just wanted to to be proud of the work they're doing and to and to have impact. Uh, and then the last the last point is that it's just a very unique point in time uh, in the in the world for privacy and security uh, and how much focus there is on this and how much. Uh, bad press there is on tech companies that are not taking this seriously. And that's been always been something that has been uh, really important to me. And uh, I knew that this was a really unique point in time for Mozilla uh, to have a, a say in what's what's going to happen in the next 10 years in tech. So all of those combined were, were the, the big draw. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you mentioned kind of being drawn to you know, turnaround roles and 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 sticky role, challenging roles, positions that uh, require you to really, you know, re-engineer a lot of uh, the people, processes, and systems. How do you go about doing that, right? Like as a people executive, when you you know you know the business is going through a, a pivot and a transformation, you know that the the underlying kind of people, processes, and and infrastructure uh, requires a lot of refining to support the new direction. As a people executive, how do you how do you go about like there's often so much there, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you, you probably have a, a whiteboard or whiteboards full of, of ideas and priorities. Like how do you, how do you kind of, uh, you know, assess all the things that need to be done and then prioritize those uh, based on, on, you know, the, the resources and the capacity that you have? Yeah, that's the, that's the whole thing. I mean, it, the most of our job, the more senior you get is about the, the decisions you make on where you prioritize and you're not always going to get it right, but, I the same I do the same thing for every new role and I do a listening tour, and I met with uh, literally I my target was a hundred one on ones and I had a hundred one on ones across the organization, uh, and talked with every level of employee from all different uh, functions, and asked like really basic questions like uh, what's what's going well with the people function what's not going well, uh, what would you change uh, if you're in my role. Uh, what do you think you would focus on first? And I did that initially just to get a groundswell of you know what is what's the sentiment out there uh, and where are the top priorities and and meeting it's easy to get that data. Uh, the trick is and to have enough volume so that you start to see where's the preponderance of the issues. So I had a cohort that's just the the leadership team, which is the CEO and and his directs. Uh, so I knew what their their key issues were. Then I looked at uh, individual contributors, what their key issues were, looked at uh, folks who were remote, looked at folks who were outside the US and just and combined all those. And I saw some themes, like a top five of themes that I thought were were showing up the most. And then once you have those, like you start to get, uh, maybe when it's 25% uh, through the listening tour, Lars, I, would, I checked in with uh, leadership team. I checked in with my team. Here's what I'm hearing. What, what is this? Does it resonate? Does it not resonate? Uh, who? These are the people I'm planning to meet with. Who else should I meet with? And then throughout, I, I did maybe one more check-in and then a final review. Uh, and most of that comes down to what is the leadership team and what are you hearing from uh, sort of ICs on what what we should prioritize. And then you make a bet, and, and you you do you uh, you look at what's what's most important. And the thing that I've always, the thing I've learned in the last couple of roles is. Uh, get the foundation in place first 
And the things that are most, the, oftentimes the things that are most important to people are not the, the cool, shiny uh, projects. It's like, get your people operations in, in order. And that was one of the key things that we had to do. And I hired a phenomenal leader. Uh, and all of, all of my direct reports are all phenomenal. I feel super blessed uh, to work with them. But I hired a phenomenal leader uh, there. I won't <laughs> won't mention the name because then everyone's gonna <laughs> go try to get him. But uh, he, <laughs> yes, he, they will. He was able to break it down from like and and sort of build this thing back up. Uh, and if you're not meeting the fundamental needs and using your uh, your tools and, and being responsive to people, that uh, you're never gonna make progress. Uh, and if your data is wrong, if your head can't, you can't get headcount right, you're never gonna make progress. So always over index on what the clients really need and they're asking for before you start to go with the shiny. And I've been guilty in the past of going after more stuff that you would publish in a PSYOP uh, a publication as opposed to, uh, you know, really get clear what the, what the business core needs are. So we, I think the first year we just focused on rebuilding uh, credibility, rebuilding trust uh, from the org. And then we were, we had, we were given the permission to do more things like really go fast at things like capability. Uh, and that's that's how that's how I started it. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you raised the point around being really kind of thoughtful and deliberate, and and not necessarily chasing the the shiny things early on. And I think that that's that's a common mistake that people execs make, uh, especially I think you know uh, earlier in their career, people execs people that are in that role for maybe the first or second time is you know they want to come in and they want to make their mark quickly. Mm-hmm. They want to they want to make an impact. They want to be seen as being impactful and that that bias for action sometimes will have them chase the wrong thing and put energy and cycles into the thing that's not really going to to move the needle in terms of you know employee engagement and satisfaction and impact and and you you find yourself kind of going down that path for a certain period of time and before you really realize okay you know this isn't this isn't really the big thing that I that I hoped it would be and so I think it's important to kind of underscore that point that you made around really being um, having li- the listening tour, but really being thoughtful about the priorities um, that will really have the most impact. And 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 sometimes it, it's much better to be slow and deliberate and mindful than fast if you're going fast down the wrong lane. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Lars. I, I would, uh, first, I think you, people underestimate the amount of time they, they really have. Uh, I think the as long as you're clear, like here is my plan. Like I was very clear with everyone I talked to. I'm going to take 90 days, 100 days, and I'm not going to make any key decisions in that in that time frame. And you're going to get pressure to make key decisions. Your your team's going to be asking you to do things that are like this has been holding for six months or 12 months. Uh, but the best thing you can do and explain to your team if you're a new CPO is, look, it's really important. I learn learn here first. I need to understand before being understood. And I want to, I want to get the culture. I want to understand the history. And then I, I need to understand whether the volume is for, for problems and the things that we need to go fix, because that's, what's going to help us make, uh, make the most progress. And you have to have a mindset of what are the clients first need? You may think that this thing would give you like this shiny thing would give you the fastest start, but I guarantee if that is not what the clients think is broken, you're, it's going to actually impede your progress. So start with what they're asking you to do and then get, once you get credibility there, they're like, okay, this person knows what they're doing. Uh, then they're going to give you the the permission to do things that are more progressive. 
Yeah, that's that's really good advice. And, and I'm curious from your perspective. I mean, obviously, you've worked in some really renowned organizations for having progressive and and forward leaning people teams. Um, when when you think about this idea of 21st century HR, what does it mean to you? How would you define it? Yeah, I think uh, we're, we're going to have to be much more business minded, and even more so in the past, because the the work that we do. I've talked about this before, but if you don't there's two core parts of our role. There is, how do you create a culture that is supportive, uh, that is uh, allows the, the work to be done really effectively, allows people to feel uh, that uh, they're not an only, they feel included, and they, they understand that their work has a meaning and a purpose. So there's that culture side of your role, but then there is a business capability side that is critical. And most of us under index on that. But if you don't if you don't really learn the business, if you don't really learn what drives user growth, uh, what drives engagement for users, uh, how do you make money? Uh, and then what levers you need to pull in order to do those things better, uh, that will that will inhibit your ability to, to look two to three years out with the business and say, this is the business we're in now, but what's the business we, we're going to go to in two years? And how do we have the capabilities so that when that starts, we can do that work? Uh, and that is the whole thing is going to be, in my opinion, going to be around capabilities because especially in tech, the industry will just continue to evolve and disrupt and you will not be, you will not be supporting uh, the business uh, if you are just working on what, what they're doing currently. Like you have to be thinking about where it's going to go and largely that those capabilities are probably going to be different, whether that's, you're going to take on a new business model, uh, you're going to shift into subscription or a content model or an enterprise model, all of those things have very different needs from a leadership, from a board dynamic, from how you uh, how you structure the organization decisions you make. So uh, you constantly have to be thinking of that because oftentimes the line leaders are not. Uh, maybe your CEO is very progressive and she thinks about that, but she would at the very least need a partner who's helping her think, this is where we need to be two years out, which means we have to start now. So I, if I focused anywhere, I would focus in, in, in that space. Yeah, I think that, that that's such an important point. And, and to me, I think that's one of the key defining characteristics of a modern CPO. You know, you, you have to, you, you can't just have the domain expertise within HR and people functions. You have to understand the business. You have to have the business acumen. You have to understand all, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, to me, the, the modern CPO role is probably the most complex in the C-suite because you you don't have to just go deep in your own domain. You have to understand the company's you know strategic plans. You have to understand the, the, the market potential and risks for the industry. You have to understand all the financials. You have to understand the marketing strategy. You have to understand the go-to-market strategy. You know, there's so much that a CPO has to really uh, understand and not just at a surface level, in addition to going really deep in their own domain that uh, the, it's just, it's so incredibly complex. Um, but again, to your point, it really all kind of comes back to that, that business acumen. Without that, I don't think you can, you can be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, we, you and I both have the same point of view. You're, you can never leave your responsibility to your, your people. Like you, you will always have that. And that's an, that's a baseline assumption. You have to be great at that. Uh, but, and think of, Think of how amazing your impact is, though, if you can do both. Because if you can, you can think through what the organization needs and the capabilities it needs to be successful, and then you can help think at an individual level. Like, how do you bring her along? 
in this? How do you, how do you make sure that, because she's, if that's a very different approach than she's seen in the past, how do you make sure people, all people kind of see like why we're going to do this and, and understand how they're connected to it and what role they can play? Um, that is, that's what helps really the, the change and the acceleration of what you're trying to do from a business side. And I tell people all the time, like the, the thing I love about my job the most is I still at this level get to impact at least one person a day, like in an individual way, like something, some conversation we have or something that we put in place that we get a thank you for. Uh, and that's like, there's my peers, I don't think have that. Like that's the unique part about doing this role as senior as you get, never lose that. Like the, the fact that you can have an impact on a person's life, which impacts their whole circle outside of work. Like it impacts their family, their friends. If you, someone leaves and, and feels good about the work they're doing, because we spend so much time doing it, you're really helping their, their broader circle uh, because that person is feeling, uh, is feeling super good about the work they do. Well, Michael, you've definitely uh, given listeners a lot to think about uh, in this episode, the, and myself as well, of course. Um, the, the last question that I have for you is, when you think about kind of your contemporaries and, and your peers in this space, who inspires you? Who, who do you kind of look at and look at the kind of teams and, and people operations groups that they're building and, and really kind of you know, point to that as, as a model for modern HR? Yeah, um, yeah, there's a few. I mean, I think uh, I'm going <laughs> to name particular people, but I think uh, I think Accenture does really good work uh, just broadly. So I think Ellen Shook, I, I read a lot of what what she does and I think uh, her her work is great. And they they have pushed uh, both like fundamentals, but also really progressive practices. Uh, I worked under Marsha Avedon uh, and Marsha is uh, she's a when I was at Merck, uh, she's a wonderful leader. Uh, and I always felt like she's got the IO psych uh, background and was able to think through uh, think through progressive uh, practices. And we were doing really early work on, on data science uh, back then. Uh, she's at Ingersoll Rand. Uh, but also she's just, she's very much in touch with what people think, what people feel and, and how to do that. So I, I learned a lot uh, under her. And then obviously Laszlo uh, hired me at Google, uh, which people may have, people may hold against him, but <laughs> I think he was, uh, he was so progressive in the, in the analytics side yeah. and how, how to think about that and how to measure uh, sort of in it, especially in a tech way, uh, the, he's changed the discipline, like full stop. And, uh, and definitely I think I, I learned a lot from him and, and his, his approach there. So I stay, I stay connected um, in, with a number of those folks. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you taking time out to share your, your experience, your journey, and, and your wisdom with me and the listeners. So thanks so much for making time. That was a pleasure, Lars. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.